Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage and system vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. Greybeards on Storage episode is brought to you today by Vast Data, and now it is my great pleasure to introduce Subramanian Kartig Global Systems Engineering Lead and Howard Marks, former co-host, now technologist extraordinary and plenipotentiary, both at Vast Data. So Kartig and Howard, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what's new at Vast? Full disclosure, Vast paid me recently to write a paper for them on AIIO. Okay, take it away. Well, All right. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate the introduction and appreciate the chance to be on your podcast. Just a little bit about myself, folks. Uh, I've been with Vast Data now for three years. Prior to that, about 20 years at EMC and Dell. And before that, I was an academic. I uh, used to be a particle physicist and did a lot of research work in that area before I came into the industry. And it's been an amazing ride here at Vast over the last three years. We've uh, grown at a pace which is hard to imagine. And we continue to go and take more and more market. And we're innovating like there's no tomorrow. Over to you, Howard. Well, as long-term listeners to this podcast may recognize, I was co-host of Greybeards on Storage in my days as an independent storage analyst, but I've now turned to the dark side where I run product evangelism and explaining how things work at Vast Data, hence my title, Technologist Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary. So uh, about this paper I recently wrote for uh, Vast Data, all about uh, AIIO, I, I spent a lot of time with Kartig talking about uh, what uh, IO looks like for uh, deep learning, neural network training, and inferencing and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So why, why is uh, AIIO so difficult to understand, Kartig? Maybe you can give us a brief understanding there. Sure. I mean, I'm happy to give you my perspective here, Ray. Uh, honestly, it's not difficult to understand in the sense that if you look at how AI processing is done, and just to give you some context, uh, there are two sort of main processing uh, phases, shall we say, for AI models. One is called training. This is when you expose a model to data that it hasn't seen before. And by looking at more and more data, it refines the model. And it measures its success by looking at the outcome as its prediction, as, as people say, versus what it's expected to predict. And once we reach a point where that prediction is as optimally matched to uh, what we expect, at that point, the model, trained model is put into the next phase, which is called inference. Inference is when you show, it, show the model something it hasn't seen before, and then have it make a prediction. This virtuous cycle keeps continuing. Sometimes the models keep getting refined, et cetera. So the IO characteristics of this uh, process are dominated in the training phase, interestingly, by a lot of reading. Because you start with a lot of data and all you really do to the data is you read a lot. And then you write out a very small amount. That small amount is typically the model that actually gets refined. We're talking about like the neural network at that point, right? Exactly. I'm talking about a neural network model. This is uh, more for deep, deep learning, but actually this also holds for any other kind of model. When you read in a lot of data uh, and then you write out the model. It's, a, it's almost like programming with data, wouldn't you say, Kartik? 
it, it, it is in some sense. I mean, the interesting thing about deep learning especially is that you, the model itself figures out what the features are that it is supposed to look for instead right, of right. the human being providing the features. So more like programs programming themselves with data. Yeah. Exactly. I so you, guess. Yeah. My yeah, favorite yeah. example is um, they took a mod, they trained a model to try and identify cancerous and benign tumors. And the model concluded that rulers led to cancerous tumors <laughs> because all the photos of cancerous tumors were from medical books where there was a ruler in the picture for skin. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. interesting. There's, there's quite a lot of uh, things of that nature that, that uh, in AI history and things like that. They're getting better at this, Howard. I'll, I'll say that much. Oh, yeah. Stuff like that. So there, there's, there's, so in a nutshell, there's a lot of data that, that needs to be processed in one form or another to construct a, a neural network model. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the question is, you know, is that data something that gets um, read quickly or is it read slowly or is it read in some fashion that that uh it just gets brought into memory and then left there or you know those are the sorts of questions that uh that lead to some some myst mystification or mystery with respect to uh, ai and work workloads and that sort of thing good questions i mean th these days like the talk of the town is you know basically gpu uh intensive models uh, commonly known, known as neural networks or also called deep learning. The reading patterns for this are the GPUs tend to get saturated uh, usually before the I.O. subsystem gets saturated, especially for training. It could be the opposite for inference, where the I.O. subsystem is taxed more because by that time the model is already trained. So the computationally intensive part of that is done. But the one outstanding characteristic for AI is not only that it reads a lot, um, and there's a lot of data that's input, but it's also very random in its nature of reads. So it's random reads that dominate uh, AI environments more than anything else, uh, and, and, especially and, in the phase. In contrast to something like HPC, which would be sequential and, and large sequential blocks being read and things of that nature. In the case for AI, uh, deep learning neural networks processing that's it's all random reads is that what you're saying yeah so you're you're spot on uh, traditional high performance computing was built for a large amount of data in and uh, and even more was sometimes written out and the io patterns were large block sequential ai training is characterized by small to medium block random read ios reads are 95% plus <clears throat> the workloads that you see <clears throat> and the media that supplies those reads should be able to support random IO. Mm -hmm. This is where something like Flash would be uh, of significant benefit, wouldn't you say, Howard? Yeah, we certainly think so. I <laughs> <laughs> might say we're a bit biased, but yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's serious types of IO. I, yeah, the other question I have is... Um, a lot of these models, when you look at something like the MLPerf, which is ML Commons benchmarks and things of that nature, they're throwing lots of GPUs at training. Uh, it's not like it's it's a one-off training, you know, one GPU to train a model. That sometimes it's it's on the order of, God forbid, a thousand GPUs or something like that. Oh yes, 
in that, in that sort of situation, does that boost the data bandwidth or is or not? It depends on the class of the problem which we're looking at. When you need a large number of GPUs, it typically means that the model is complex and needs lots of computation connected with it. And sometimes the model size itself is so large that it won't fit in GPU memory and you need to be able to spread it out across multiple GPUs, in many cases, multiple GPU servers. Extreme examples of this would be some of the large language models that are so popular in the press these days, such as GPT-3 or 3.5, which is the backend for ChatGPT. And those kind of models often require a thousand or more GPUs to train across a very, very large uh, number of servers to be able to do this. Uh, something like GPT-3, that five is on the order of 75 billion neural network nodes or parameters? More, more like GPT-3 was 175 billion parameters in it. The model itself is in the hundreds of gigabytes in size. Too mm. big to fit in GP, a single GPU's memory. Right. You're going to have to spread it out. And there's so much computation involved that multiple GPU servers will work in cooperation and GPUs from one server will communicate with GPUs from another server just to exchange information as the processing goes on. Uh -huh. And that's just the training. Now, something like that in inferencing would be quite extraordinary, right? I mean, you in might have Inferencing to... is interesting. Inferencing, because the model is fully trained, you can actually embed the model in something quite a bit smaller hmm. to do inference. Um, I mean, think, for example, of something like autonomous driving. You know, you, you train the model with a ton of HD video and LiDAR data, thousands of GPUs, but the final model is small enough to fit in an automobile, which doesn't have any highly specialized uh, hardware in it. Some of these automobiles are almost like data centers on wheels anymore, Kartik. I mean, These God. days? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're showing <laughs> our age, Ray. I guess, yeah, I guess, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's got, you know, a terabyte or so of storage and it's sitting there with probably, I don't know, eight or nine, you know, CPU chips with, you know, multi-core each or something. Oh, it's crazy. Oh, we both remember when that was a whole data center, but yeah. most of our listeners don't. Uh, huh. I do too. Yes. Huh. Uh, huh. Uh, I'm old enough to qualify for that. So one of the things that was sort of striking, which kind of was the, I would say, almost the leading uh, idea behind the paper, we were looking at the uh, uh, the NVIDIA DGX reference architecture papers. And, and so they've got, oh, I don't know, six or seven different storage vendors have, have produced uh, DGX reference architectures. And they all they all have a, I'm not sure, I think it's a RetinaNet uh Training the Resnet, 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 Resnet yeah. training, yeah, Resnet fifty training that they were show the performance of their storage with, and across all six of these, it almost looks exactly the same. I mean, whether you're using one DGX or four DGX, which is what thirty two, maybe sixty four different GPUs or something like that, yeah. the performance of the storage looked exactly the same. What does that tell you, Howard? It tells me that there's a lot of compute going on. And the DGXs aren't just sucking data as fast as they can. So the storage isn't the bottleneck. Yeah, storage is not the bottleneck in this case, which is kind of, 
it's interesting when you think about 64 GPUs sitting there, 40 gig or 80 gig each, you know, sitting there churning on this, on you know, what, ResNet 50. I'm not sure that's a very sophisticated image recognition model. I wouldn't, I have no idea what the size of it is, but I oh, guess it's, it's a relatively million. small one. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it, was, it was a very famous one, though. I mean, this was yeah, the initial, yeah. what they call ImageNet Challenge. Right. consists of about 1.3 million, roughly 115K images. So they're pretty small images, yeah. and, which is why, the, like, like Howard said, basically the fact that any vendor you do, you look at, can do pretty much the same, tells you that that particular benchmark is not IO bound. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But there are plenty of other models out there, some of which are IO bound, and, and there are plenty of other protocols out there as well that, that uh, different systems uh, can, can utilize uh, with NVIDIA GPUs and things of that nature that, uh, that boost some of these workloads up uh, considerably. And also remember, we're saying that all of these vendors whose all flash systems were fast enough. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's interesting. Um, all the reference architectures that NVIDIA has produced so far for any vendor, all of them happen to be on all flash systems. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. for the reasons we talked about. <laughs> right, because random of reads. random, yeah, random small reads and things of that nature. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's so... Uh, sorry. So we talked about a little bit in the paper, uh, a new protocol that's recently come out called, I think, NVIDIA GPU Direct Storage. Yeah. And, and what does that do for this sort of workload and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so... What NVIDIA noticed was as their GPUs got more and more powerful and they were put on systems with a moderate amount of CPU, it was difficult to keep the GPUs busy. I mean, their appetite is voracious. They have Even thousands of compute bound, effectively. It's still, it's still problematic to keep the GPUs busy. Well, oh, the it is. GPUs yeah. have more memory bandwidth than the CPUs to their yeah. onboard memory. Yeah. And, exactly. And so, and so what becomes the problem is as you RDMA off of multiple 100 gigabit per second Ethernet cards into CPU memory to get to GPU memory, the CPU memory became a bottleneck. Uh, yeah. And GPU Direct allows the, the NIC to RDMA directly into GPU memory, bypassing the CPU memory. So it goes from storage direct to GPU without touching the CPU at all? Right. And exactly. the CPU sort of coordinates the process, no doubt, but uh, everything else is moving data from one memory, storage memory, to GPU memory, or vice versa, I guess, right? Yeah, because otherwise, if you look at the data path, you'd have to move the data from the storage to CPU and system memory, and then move it from system memory to GPU memory. In many cases, that's an unnecessary step if you're not right. going to actually modify the data and memory. And you're limited then by the backplane bandwidth between system memory and the GPU subsystem. Mm -hmm. Instead of that, why not cut out the middleman? Just go directly to the GPUs. That's really so, does GPU Direct work with? Uh, obviously, it works with Ethernet RDMA as well as InfiniBand RDMA. Is it is it uh, is it a file services protocol or is it a block services protocol? I'm just trying to understand the the nature of it. So, 
under the covers, you're going to be moving data from storage to a memory address and in the GPUs. So whatever this is, it needs to be a direct memory access operation. Hence, the storage subsystem has to support either DMA or RDMA. Right. Now, at best, we implement this with NFS because that's huh. what we do. We expose everything with NFS, and RDMA is the underlying transport for the NFS, as opposed to what people usually see, which is TCP. Other vendors have native clients, which are DMA clients, and they can use DMA as well to get hmm. the data into the GPUs. Right. Uh, right. But in essence, yeah, that's not. It's basically a very low-level hardware transfer of data from right. storage uh, into GPU memory. More than that, GPU Direct is a file protocol. AI uses files, not block. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say whether, that most of the data for training a data file system or. A NAS like us. Yeah. So most of the trading data nowadays is all uh, S3 objects or files and things of that nature. Isn't that the way they're structured? Yeah. They, see, the thing is that you need every GPU server in your GPU farm to be able to see the same data. That means it has to be some shared uh, storage. And file gives you a very clean way to be able to see all the data. Right. Uh, no matter how right. big your CPU farm is. So right. file is a preferred uh, exposure, Yeah, either yeah. through a parallel file system or through NAS of some kind or now objects. For, you're right. Uh, now, for, for things like prediction or classifications and things of that nature, typically the training data is got, you know, like a data, which is an image, and then maybe the, the actual classification, which might be objects that are detected in the image and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Are those spread across lots and lots of directories or is it typically, you know, one or two directories or, you know, how is that structured in a file system look like? So it's not so much directories that matters. It's mount points. It's a single namespace that matters from an operational standpoint. Hmm. Typically, each server should be able to mount a one mount should contain all the data. Now, that mount may have subdirectories and folders and stuff like that. That's fine. Hmm. But the key thing is what you don't want to be dealing with is the headache of managing multiple mounts on the same uh, on the same client. Right. So the ability to have large mounts, large namespace, and keep in mind, some of the, some of the data sets could be multiple petabytes in size. Hmm. You, you hmm. want to be able to expose all those petabytes without having to like do this and deliver the full performance of your storage to that right, mount. Right. Now, some uh, storage has problems with uh, a single mount point uh, and providing, you know, high performance bandwidth and things of that nature. Uh, but apparently, VAST doesn't have this problem. What's what's VAST's secret recipe for being able to sustain high performance to small numbers of mounts and small numbers of directories? Well, the basic problem is TCP. If you mount an NFS mount point over TCP, that's until just recently one TCP session. And therefore you have the bandwidth product delay problem that you can only have so much data in flight. And that limits the bandwidth of that to about 2.5 gigabytes per second. Hmm. Per mount point? Per mount point. Per, per mount point. Yes. So... About two years ago, the nConnect mount option made it into most common Linux distributions. 
And that lets you specify as a mount option and connect equals four. And instead of using one TCP session, the NFS client will use four TCP sessions. And so that boosts the total available bandwidth from 2.5 gigabytes per second to 10 gigabytes per second. Then we have to attack the latency problem. So we, instead of running NFS over TCP, we run NFS over RDMA. And that reduces the time it takes to process each request and the effective bandwidth because the system is spending less time sitting there doing nothing. Finally, we've made our own addition to the TCP client that allows us to spread the multiple connections that NConnect specifies over multiple source destination IP address pairs. So different NICs, different nodes on the scale-out storage system. And so with the combination of all of those, we can saturate multiple hundred gigabyte per second, 100 gigabit per second connections from the storage to a single client. Huh, huh, huh. Yeah, this is often something that catches people by surprise, right? Uh, most people say NFS, like Howard said, you know, straight up NFS over TCP is limited to two, two and a half gigabytes a second. We've been able to benchmark with GP Direct, to be fair, 175 gigabytes a second, single mount point, single client what? over NFS3. What, like 64 thing. nodes or what? <laughs> that, that client was a DGX A100. Correct. Oh, my God. The server had 16 compute nodes. The storage system had 16 compute nodes. Correct. Um, oh, but it's nice. still one client accessing one. Exactly. That malware. client had eight NICs, you know, eight to yeah, yeah, exactly. NICs. So it had plenty of bandwidth going in, but we were able to line saturate the sucker. Huh, huh, huh. That's very impressive for a storage system these days. Yeah. I can so, remember when, you know, 10 gigabytes per second for block was good. <laughs> Let alone. You're, you're dating us all. File, you know. <laughs> right. Yep. I know, I know. Okay, all right, I'll stop well, it, that. It, it, you know, it also is, is revelatory about the old bone that block is fast and file is slow. Yeah. You know, yeah. block yeah. was fast and file was slow when processors were 20 megahertz and yeah. you had two cores right and network bandwidth was 10 megabit yeah right yeah you know if you, if you have enough compute horsepower and you have enough network bandwidth nas can be just as fast as you need with a few tweaks here and there oh yeah yeah <laughs> you need to be clever everything's about clever software yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. you know the way i mean we've contributed all the code for these enhancements we made to open source and oh, um, good, you good. Know, trying to get uh, NFS maintainers to make it part of the Linux kernel so the right. entire community can benefit from it, not just right, us. Right, right, So, Well, okay, this has been great, guys. Um, Kartik and Howard, is there anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? I'd just like to point out that you know AI is just one of the many things you can do with universal storage that you know, the name is hyperbolic, but just a little. And that's the vast data storage system, right? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. To, to wrap up here, Ray. First of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, we are absolutely committed at Vast to being the best platform for AI and for virtually everything else out there. And the reason is because we feel that we solve 
some core problems which every serious AI practitioner is going to face. One of them is performance. We talked about that. The other is scale, our contention-free uh, architecture with no east-west traffic or cache coherency allows us to scale to very large namespaces. And uh, the third is we are the most affordable such system for all flash due to the our unique ability to use low-cost uh, consumer-grade NAND as the substrate for solid state. Mm. And lastly, it is easy to use. These systems are super easy to administer. When you're talking about this much storage and this much data, ease of use starts to become key. Operational stability and resilience are second to none in the industry from how we operate. Okay. These, I think, are the reasons why we are perfect for AI. All right. Well, this has been great. Kartik and Howard, thanks again for being on our show today. Always a pleasure, Ray. Right. Me too, Ray. Thank you so much. And thanks again to Vast Data for sponsoring this podcast. That's it for now. Bye, Kartik. Bye, Howard. Take care, Ray. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out. 